Has it been six months since my last episode? Sure. Does it cause me a lot of anxiety that I left my listeners on a cliffhanger of a communist threat for half a year? Oh, you betcha. But during my hiatus, I was really productive, dragging my way through the end of a terrible school year and building like a terrifying TikTok following. So it was time well spent. In all seriousness, before I get to the episode, I do want to say a quick thank you to you, the listener. Hey, I'm talking to you in your car. Uh, I do want to say thank you to everyone who supported me, whether that was financially on Patreon, whether that was subscribing to one of the many different projects I'm trying to do, like whatever that is, thank you. Over the past year, every like everyone else, I had a ton on my plate and I just had to take the podcast off that to-do list for a while. And so I appreciate y'all being patient, but I'm back. Let's get to U.S. history. Let's do it. Today, we're talking about the Cold War. And as always, if you want a more global view of this conflict, check out season one, because today we're focusing on the United States. More Rocky, less Drago. Today's episode is all about the early Cold War, or MacArthur, McCarthy, and Ike. I'm Emily Glankler, this is Anti-Social Studies, settle in, and let's go back in time. Act one, the beginnings. All right, so let's just get this out of the way. Why do Americans hate communists? Now, we can get into a whole philosophical discussion another day about how communist governments aren't actually communists. They're really just totalitarian state socialism, but like I'm exhausted, so let's just oversimplify for now. And the US became fearful of communism for a few kind of simple reasons. Number one, idealistically, most governments that claim to be communist are anti-democratic. The Soviet Union, Cuba, North Korea, you get the idea. So it was easy for Americans to look at Stalin, who was like a brutal dictator on par with Hitler, and see him and the system he ruled as the bad guy. That's totally fair. There are a few other reasons we should be aware of, though, because as we will see, the US is going to support other anti-democratic governments that are opposed to left-leaning democratic movements. So like, what's that gonna be all about? So number two, Karl Marx advocated for the violent overthrow of the capitalist system. And like, who's the capitalist system to end all other capitalist systems? USA, USA, USA. Number three, since the Gilded Age, organized labor has been seen as a threat to the growing economy. Remember Haymarket? It took labor unions decades to convince the public that all union organizers weren't anarchists. Then the Bolshevik revolution happened in 1917. They were all like, ugh, back to the drawing board. Reason number four in the list of why Americans historically have been terrified of communism is that communism since the beginning has been equated with foreigners, especially those, this is the air quotes here, new immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe coming in in the late 1800s. Those were easy political scapegoats. And you might be saying right now, like, well, yeah, communism was a foreign ideology, right? Karl Marx was German. A lot of the states and the groups that were the first ones to practice communism were, you know, immigrant groups, immigrant labor unions, sure. But like, let me challenge that for a second and say that capitalism was a foreign ideology too. Adam Smith was Scottish and capitalism rises after the United States asserts its independence. So like it's coming over as a somewhat foreign ideology too. It just gets here and gets established way earlier. So it kind of wins. But for our purposes, the most important reason why there are generations of Americans who equate communism with terrifying anti-Americans is that if you were growing up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, then basically every time you turned on the news, you saw some group or some leader who was calling themselves a communist trying to kill American soldiers. It's like totally reasonable. So you have the Soviet spies, you have North Korea, you have Mao Zedong, you have Che Guevara speaking out against the United States at the UN, you have Ho Chi Minh. like. 
So even without all the philosophical and historical background, it's really easy for boomers especially to grow up looking around like, wow, all communists must be really violent and really hate America. So current philosophical discussions about like, well, that's not technically communism and blah, 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 which I engage into don't really matter, right? For our intents and purposes, the groups that were fighting wars against the United States and that we were often going to war against called themselves communists. So that's why. It's sort of a chicken in the egg kind of thing, right? We were scared of communists, so we fought them. And then we were always fighting communists. And so we were scared of them. Anyway, question number two, when does the Cold War begin? And this is a really tricky one because the Cold War isn't a war, so it never actually started, right? Like the Cold War is just a term for the general atmosphere of tension and conflict between the United States and the USSR and their allies from like around 1945 to 1991 when the Soviet Union fell apart. And so the simple answer is just that like as soon as Hitler was no longer a common enemy, the conflict between the US and the Soviets began. Between 1944 and 1950, the world slowly divided into camps. The U.S. led the way, pushing free market capitalism. We had the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference held in New Hampshire. They helped create the World Bank and the IMF to rebuild Europe and develop, quote, third world nations in the image of the West. And then Stalin also just repeatedly went back on promises made about Soviet troops leaving Eastern Europe after the war ended. But if the Cold War like began anywhere at a single event, I would argue that it started in Berlin. So all of the Allied powers recognized the strategic importance of Germany, and especially its capital, Berlin. Stalin wanted reparations. He basically wanted to use East Germany as a colony to extract resources to like rebuild Russia. And remember, Russia had just lost 27 million people during World War II. The other allies, the US, Britain, and France wanted to reunite Germany and help them revive their economy. You know, not make the same mistakes as the Treaty of Versailles. And in the end, not wanting to start another war, they just split Germany down the middle. Oh my God, we're gonna do this so many times. It never works. So East Germany was administered by the Soviets while the West was guided by the other allies. And eventually the West was allowed to exercise some independence. But here's the tricky part. Berlin, the city, was also split in half. So the eastern half of the city became the capital of East Germany and the western half of the city stayed with West Germany. And now, this is really hard to imagine unless you're looking at a map, but like, Berlin is way far into East Germany. Like it's over a hundred miles from the east-west border. So West Berlin becomes this like tiny little democratic island surrounded on all sides by Soviet controlled East Germany. And there wasn't a Berlin Wall yet. So as the years went on, a lot of people in East Berlin and East Germany started to realize that like, I don't know, things weren't gonna be so great under Soviet control. And so they could walk over a hundred miles into West Germany or they could just like cross a checkpoint into West Berlin. Easy. So by 1948, it was pretty clear that Germany was not gonna be reunified anytime soon, especially under Soviet control, which like that's what Stalin wanted. He wanted Germany to basically become part of the Soviet sphere and we were not gonna let that happen. So in 1948, the US helped reorganize the West German economy and introduce a new currency, the Deutschmark. And the next day, Stalin began blockading West Berlin. So at this point, the lines are drawn, right? We've had this facade of saying like, ah, oh, we're gonna have elections and we're gonna reunite Germany and we'll figure it out later. But it's clear by 1948, that's not gonna happen. And the United States in helping reorganize the West German economy, making it different from the East German economy, it's like, yeah, yeah, we're just gonna move forward with two separate Germanys. 
Clearly, Stalin is not happy about that, and so he immediately blockades the city of West Berlin, and he also introduces a new currency, and he says this is going to be the currency used in all of Berlin, East and West. He's basically claiming all of Berlin as Soviet territory, and a lot of people were afraid this was like a precursor to a full-scale Soviet invasion. Even though an invasion didn't come, the blockade was really bad, right? Electricity was cut off. They stopped food from coming in. The blockade lasted for 323 days, almost an entire year. Except Stalin seemed to forget about planes. Or more accurately, he seemed to forget about like how freaking amazing the US and the British Air Forces were in World War II. And like that we had a lot of planes just sitting around with nothing to do in the wake of World War II. So this is known as the Berlin Airlift. Throughout that year of the blockade, US and British forces flew over Berlin 250,000 times. We dropped food and fuel to like outlast the blockade. And this is like a really proud American moment. I'm surprised more Americans don't learn about this because this is kind of a feat of engineering and the strength of our military and the strength of our like humanitarian aid to the city of West Berlin. Let me list out a few other facts for you about this Berlin airlift because it just blows my mind. Okay, so throughout that year, we flew over Berlin 250,000 times. At the peak of the airlift, we were delivering 12,000 tons of supplies every day. A plane was arriving over West Berlin every 30 seconds, and the British and US planes combined traveled in that year almost the entire distance from the Earth to the Sun. It's, it's amazing, right? And it worked. It worked in that Stalin gave up control of West Berlin, but he also immediately began building a wall to keep Easterners from using it as a loophole to escape Soviet territory. So that's where the Berlin Wall comes from, basically. Okay, why did I just go into a ton of detail about Berlin? You're like, this is American history, talk about America. No, you're not, but whatever. So this event is basically a microcosm of the entire Cold War, right? For 45 years, US and Soviet troops will not directly fight each other. That's why we say it stayed cold, right? It never heated up, at least between US and Soviet troops, right? But millions of people are gonna get caught between those two superpowers. There will be entire countries being used as pawns in like a global chess match. An elected leader in Guatemala starts advocating for redistributing foreign-owned land to its peasants. Mm, sorry, Arbenz, we're sending in the CIA. Should have listened to season one. An elected leader in Iran advocates for nationalizing foreign-owned oil. <sighs> Didn't you just hear what happened in Guatemala, Mozadek? Oh no, those are happening at literally the exact same time. Oh, my bad. Well, we're sending in the CIA to you too, right? Sometimes the US will use the CIA. Other times they'll flood a country with economic support in the hopes of preventing people from turning to communism. And in a few instances, the US will send troops to war. There are different tactics, but always they have the same goal of stopping the spread of communism, whether that's to West Berlin or, I don't know, the Korean Peninsula. to the Korean War. All right, so if even after the Berlin Airlift, people weren't sure if a Cold War was on, it was pretty clear by 1950. All right, a little bit of historical context. The Korean Peninsula had been under the influence or the direct control of one East Asian superpower or another for like, I don't know, like a thousand years, right? Since 1910, Korea had been a colony of Japan and they were horribly mistreated. So when Japan lost World War II, the Korean Peninsula was liberated by both the Soviets and the US. Oh no, oh God. You're gonna start to notice a pattern here. They couldn't decide what to do with post-war Korea. And so they just, 
Yeah, you guessed it. They split it in half. The North was supported and administered by the Soviets, who installed Kim Il-sung as their new leader. And the South was supported and administered by the U.S., who installed Sigmund Rhee. Uh, quick note about these two leaders, even though I know this isn't a world history episode, but like... Kim Il-sung hadn't lived in Korea for 30 years. He fled to Manchuria when the Japanese invaded and had spent time in China and the Soviet Union fighting the Japanese occupation of Korea. Like, he served as a major in the Soviet army during World War II. And even more, like, dramatic, Sigmund Rhee, who became the president of South Korea, hadn't lived in Korea since 1904. Like, Teddy Roosevelt was president. He had also opposed the Japanese occupation, so he fled to the United States. He attended Harvard, and he served as an unofficial ambassador between the U.S. and Korea for like 40 years. So I just want to be clear, both sides literally just handpicked someone who had spent more time in their respective countries than Korea. And then they installed them as leaders, and both were brutal dictators. So, awesome. In June of 1950, the North Korean army invaded the South, attempting to reunite the peninsula under Kim's communist rule. So a few pieces of context. This is like context within context. Welcome to my brain. Okay, so Kim Il-sung was inspired partly by Mao Zedong, right? I mean, the communist revolution in China had just been successful in 1949, just one year earlier. He was backed by Stalin and like kind of handpicked by the Soviets. But also this was like a little test case, right? This was the first direct challenge to this Truman doctrine of containment, right? So the idea, according to Truman, as given in a speech to Congress when he was asking for support for Greece and Turkey, who were both fighting against kind of communist uprisings or Soviet influence. And basically Truman said, here's going to be our policy. We are not going to go and directly fight Soviet troops. That's too dangerous because we both have nuclear weapons. And in fact, we're going to try not to fight any other country that eventually has nuclear weapons. What we are going to do is we're going to stop the spread of communism. We're going to try to contain it to where it is right now, which at the time of that speech was just really the Soviet Union. And we're not going to allow it to spread any further. Okay, so, you know, China falling to communism was like a huge blow to this Truman Doctrine. But this northern invasion of the South is the first real direct challenge to see, like, all right, is Truman going to actually step in and send troops to stop the spread of communism? Most, at least communists, believed he wouldn't because the Korean Peninsula wasn't really that important strategically, especially because we already had control of Japan. All right, so back to the war. So... The South Korean military is attempting to defend itself, but like they fall apart almost immediately. Within two months, the North Koreans controlled almost all of South Korea. They basically won the war. There was one small section in the Southwest near Busan, but the UN had been gathering a coalition of troops to stop this invasion. Again, they were not gonna go and then try to conquer North Korea, but as the new United Nations, they were like, all right, well, we kind of have one job and it's to prevent unnecessary wars. So they gather a coalition force led by the United States to go in and support South Korea. All right. And who was chosen to lead this coalition? Enter dramatic military music, General Douglas MacArthur. Get ready, this is like the final, this is act three in my argument of why I hate Douglas MacArthur. All right, so Truman picked MacArthur specifically because of his recent successes in the Pacific during World War II, but like he knew he was also getting an egotistical showman who wanted to make everyone know his name. Like that's gonna come back to bite both of them later on. So MacArthur launches a bold counteroffensive that's like D-Day style. It was this amphibious landing, meaning they were coming from the water onto the land, right into the middle of conquered territory at Incheon. And the U.S. very quickly drove the North Koreans back to the original boundary line where they had divided the North and the South, the 38th parallel. And here's the key. Truman could have stopped there, 
right? His policy was containment, and he had done that. He had kept the communist regime in the north. And he immediately started negotiating a ceasefire in an attempt to stop the fighting, right? The Korean War could have been almost not even a war. It could have just been a like, we went in, we pushed the North back, now we're back to where we started. But MacArthur had other plans. Oh my God, Douglas. So again, this was the first real world challenge to Truman's containment theory. And there was kind of a philosophical divide on what exactly that containment theory meant, especially when we were mobilizing troops like we had already done in South Korea. So was our goal to just stop communism from spreading to new places? If so, we did that, awesome. And Truman thought that was it. He wanted to end the fighting and just like keep the Koreas divided for now and figure out a more diplomatic solution in the future. But MacArthur, the military guy, thought that the US should do more than just contain communism. They should eliminate it entirely, especially considering that the North had actively invaded the South. He was like, we need to wipe North Korea off the map. And he meant that literally. Right. So even as Truman, the president, was negotiating a ceasefire, the general ordered his troops across the 38th parallel. Come on, MacArthur, like you can't do that. There's a chain of command, right? So there wasn't really much for Truman to do at that point, like especially because the U.S. took most of North Korea really quickly. Right. It would have looked even worse if Truman had openly been like, no, Douglas, give that land back. Like that would have looked even weaker. Right. So Douglas MacArthur pushes his troops almost to like the border of North Korea. But the border between North Korea and China is the Yalu River. And Truman had made it really clear that the US was not supposed to get too close to Chinese territory. Like we could defeat the North Korean military pretty easily, but not the Chinese military that had just finished fighting like a decades long civil war. And they were like war hardened communist soldiers, right? And MacArthur just kept like inching closer. He had promised his troops that they were gonna be home by Christmas and damn it, MacArthur intended to keep that promise. Oh my God. Remember how the US Army like had to suffer through brutal fighting in the Philippines just to keep one of MacArthur's earlier promises? Oh my God. So eventually MacArthur got too close and China joined the war. So tens of thousands of troops stream across the Yalu River and they've pretty quickly pushed the US back to the 38th parallel. Keep in mind, this is less than one year since the North invaded the South. So all of this has happened and we are back exactly to where we started. And immediately MacArthur starts publicly criticizing the Truman administration, who is still trying to negotiate the end of the war. Now they have to deal with China as well, right? They're like, thanks MacArthur. He brought another party into the table to make this ceasefire even more complicated, right? MacArthur's like not done, right? He wants to continue and he wants to now take the fight to China. He suggested bombing Chinese cities to retaliate. Like MacArthur was so down for World War III. Oh my God. So like Truman fired MacArthur, right? Like you can't just go publicly criticize the president when you are the top general fighting a war against the communists. And you can't publicly say like, I'd really like to just like bomb China. Why not? Like you can't do those things. This is why we can't have nice things. MacArthur, we live in a society. Okay, so Truman fires MacArthur, and this is a really big deal. Like MacArthur was the most famous general from World War II besides like Eisenhower, who was about to become president, by the way, spoiler alert. And MacArthur was publicly humiliated. Rightly so, in my opinion, like Douglas needed to be taken down a few notches. But still, this I think points to one of the many reasons why the Korean War is somewhat forgotten, at least amongst Americans. It's because it was really messy and it was also starting to break down this national unity that we had built during World War II, right? Our national heroes like MacArthur were being taken down. 
Okay, so with China in the mix and then still being backed by the Soviets, like it just sort of becomes a stalemate. And the last, you know, two years of fighting are really just fighting over that 38th parallel. No one really moves that far on either side of the line. And so by 1953, the two sides signed an armistice, right? Side note, the South Korean president turned dictator, Sigmund Rhee, that we chose, he refused to sign the armistice. He wanted to keep fighting. So he got kicked out of office. Obviously, the brutal Kim communist dictatorship in North Korea was established. And I mean, Korea has just been divided at the 38th parallel ever since. Technically, the Korean War hasn't ended because there hasn't been a formal peace agreement acknowledging the two separate countries. So technically, we've just been a really long pause. And, okay, one more thing on MacArthur. One year later, after the war ended, MacArthur gave an interview where he like elaborated on what he would have done if he had been able to do whatever he wanted to end the Korean War. And so I just, I can't let any of you walk away from this podcast thinking Douglas MacArthur was not an egomaniacal, terrible person. Okay, let me just read to you what he said. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. <coughs> of all the campaigns of my life, 20 major ones to be exact, Korea was the one I felt most sure that I was deprived of waging. I could have won the war in Korea in a maximum of 10 days. I would have dropped between 30 and 50 atomic bombs on the air bases and other depots strung across the neck of Manchuria, in China, by the way. It was my plan as our amphibious forces moved south to spread behind us from the Sea of Japan to the Yellow Sea, a belt of radioactive cobalt. It could have been spread from wagons, carts, trucks, and planes. For at least 60 years, there could have been no land invasion of Korea from the north. The enemy could not have marched across that radiated belt. Let's just, cool, cool, cool. So let's, let's just dissect that for a second. He, just like 30 to 50 atomic bombs, no big deal. And like, I don't know, just like spreading a belt of radioactive waste across North Korea so that like no one can get past because, you know, no one can survive. God, I hate MacArthur. All right. Side note, MacArthur also famously visited Congress after he was fired to give a like farewell address because of course he did. He was interrupted 50 times with standing ovations and he delivered this really famous line that my grandma still says all the time. Old soldiers never die, they just fade away. And he went on, I, oh God, I really actually love talking about MacArthur. I love hating him. Okay, he went on, quote, like the old soldier of that ballad, I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the light to see that duty. Goodbye. Oh my God, you're so dramatic. He is so extra. And again, another side note, he went on to like sort of run for the presidency in 1952. MacArthur never formally announced it, but he went on this huge speaking tour and I think like kind of hoped that everyone would just like ask him to run. He was, I think, out like putting himself out there and hoping that other like Republican people and strategists would be like, oh my God, Douglas, you have to run for president. And he'd go, no, I couldn't. And then he would, but no one asked him because Eisenhower was running. Right. And like there has got to be a story there, like some brewing feud between the two military generals. But like, I don't know, there's no evidence for that, but I would watch the hell out of that HBO miniseries. All right, let's get back to Korea. Well, so thankfully, Douglas MacArthur did not have his way, but it's not like the actual fighting was much better than what MacArthur wanted. Right. Like the war completely devastated the Korean peninsula. And, and by that, I mean, it was literally flattened. And I'm using the word literally 
correctly. By the end of the war, many Koreans were just permanently living underground, and U.S. bomber pilots were struggling to find a target to drop bombs on. Everything had just been destroyed. The U.S. dropped more bombs on the tiny Korean peninsula in three years than they did in the entire Pacific theater of World War II. That's astounding. So why has this become the quote-unquote forgotten war? Okay, here's a few things. Number one, it's definitely not forgotten in Korea. Like these three years are the defining moment of modern Korean history. Around 25% of the Korean population was killed during the war and most of them were civilians. Like in North Korea still today, children are taught of the US bombing as a Holocaust. Like you cannot understand modern Korea or their relationships with the United States without understanding just how brutal the Korean war was. But from the US perspective, the Korean war is often glossed over in the US because really, at least since the War of 1812, it's the first war that we didn't clearly win, right? I mean, it's not even technically over. So like, sure, if you frame the goal as we wanted to keep the communists in North Korea, okay, we did that, woohoo. But like no one who really studies the war sees it that way. And the 40,000 Americans who died in the war just for it to end with basically nothing changed probably wouldn't have seen it that way either. And Americans back home were booming, right? They were making babies, buying homes, going to college. They were in this era of good feelings at the end of the war and the depression. And frankly, most of them didn't even really know where Korea was. So it was easy for them to not get too caught up in what was going on over there. For understanding the Cold War, y'all, the Korean War is so important. Like I'm gonna argue the Korean War in some ways, well, it's as important as World War II, and in some ways it's more, at least for understanding how the Cold War is gonna be fought. Here are three reasons that I think all US Americans should know more about the Korean War. Number one, it was the first actual proxy war between the US and the Soviet Union. Like this was the first time the US sent its own troops to fight communists abroad. And sure, we didn't fight Soviet soldiers, but we fought their proxies. And the closest proxies really that will fight throughout the whole Cold War, the North Koreans and the people of China. And this is really the only war we've ever fought against China. And considering they're growing to be our most powerful adversary in the 21st century, I don't know, like it kind of seems like this should be three years we all study pretty closely, but what do I know? Number two, the Korean War is also the beginning of the rise of China. If you remember from season one, China had been weakened and struggling since the 1800s. The Opium Wars, the Taiping Rebellion, the end of the Chinese dynasty's civil war between nationalists and communists. But Mao Zedong took control of mainland China in 1949. And just a year later, they were fighting and winning against the United States. Like, that's a really big deal. And sure, they're still super weak. They're gonna live in the shadow of the Soviet Union for another decade or so, but it's sort of Mao and the Chinese army's debut on the world stage, and that's really important. And number three, and most importantly for US history, the Korean War is the moment that we established a permanent global military presence. After World War II, the US military was reduced in size by 90%. We forget this, but like, it was not clear after World War II that the US would remain this military power around the world. We'd been dragged into both world wars begrudgingly, right? The Lusitania and the Zimmerman telegram forced us into World War I. Pearl Harbor gave us no choice but to join World War II. Although, sure, I'm sure we would have joined at some point. But in the few years after the war ended in 1945 up to 1950, it kind of looked like the US was just gonna go back to focusing on its economic growth. But after the Korean War, the US did not reduce the size of its military. A conscious decision was made to maintain a large standing military stationed around the world to contain the threat of communism. 
World War II established us as the most dominant military force, both in troops and in our military industry, but it was the Korean War that set up that powerful military as a sort of global police force. And ironically, the first person to warn the U.S. of the dangers and complications that could come with a powerful standing military was Dwight D. Eisenhower, the military hero turned president. Act three, President Eisenhower. All right, so first off, I think Eisenhower is a president that we should all study more because if Obama was trying to be FDR and Trump was trying to be Andrew Jackson, then I think President Joe Biden is trying to be Eisenhower. By today's standards, Eisenhower would probably be considered a moderate Democrat, right? He increased federal spending for massive infrastructure projects like the federal highway system. He continued liberal New Deal and Fair Deal programs from FDR and Truman. He used federal troops to enforce desegregation at Little Rock High School. More on that next episode. And he did order the complete desegregation of the U.S. military. But back first to the Korean War, Eisenhower was president when the fighting stopped. But credit really still goes to Truman, right? And Eisenhower did have a complicated relationship with the military. Like, he had been the supreme commander of Allied forces in Europe. He was responsible for the D-Day invasion. Before running for president, he had been the first supreme commander of NATO, this new military alliance to counter the growing Soviet threat. And he was willing to use the military, ideally just the threat of our powerful U.S. military to deter Soviet advances. So Eisenhower is very confusing to a lot of people, including myself, because you would assume that this most famous military general would come in and be like a war hawk. But he wasn't. But he kind of was. But he wasn't. Right? He practiced a thing called brinkmanship. Basically, he believed we should maintain this powerful military and we should invest in the arms race, but only as a threat to deter actual war. Right? And so it's not as simple as like Republican military general wants war and then later on liberal young JFK doesn't. Eh, That's actually not really the case. Eisenhower actually really wanted to negotiate with the Soviets. He actually even proposed that both the militaries like exchange blueprints of all of their military establishments to strengthen this mutually assured destruction element of the Cold War. Like, basically, if we both have nuclear weapons, then neither side will ever attack the other because it would cause both sides to fall. And Eisenhower wanted to go further and literally give the Soviets access to aerial photography and exact locations of our military bases to deter future leaders from wanting to use the bomb. MacArthur. Anyway. Now, that plan didn't end up happening, but it shows that Eisenhower was willing to go to great lengths to prevent World War III. And that makes sense, considering he saw the human toll of the war in Europe. But he understood that the only way that the Soviets would take the U.S. seriously was if they knew the U.S. was willing to follow through on its threats. This is the defining characteristic of the early Cold War, is brinkmanship. Basically, by trying to prove that they weren't all talk, both sides pushed the other to the brink of an all-out war. They're kind of testing each other's boundaries from around 1945 to really 1960. This is literally a global game of chicken, but with nuclear weapons. And even though Eisenhower was a military guy and he wanted to maintain a strong military to back up diplomatic negotiations with the Soviets, he also was uniquely positioned to see the potential downside of having such an enormous military. The thing I find the most interesting about Eisenhower, as kind of with George Washington, is his farewell address. In this farewell address, Eisenhower famously warned Americans about a growing military-industrial complex. 
Basically, before the Cold War, U.S. industry, like the auto industry, could transition to military production, like, during wartime. But then they would transition back to making cars or fridges or whatever when the war was over. But now that we were in this semi-permanent state of war against communism, Eisenhower warned about the danger of a permanent defense industry threatening our democracy. Eisenhower posed a lot of questions like, what if defense contractors and the military begin to wield more influence in our government? Or what if military spending becomes so costly that it takes away resources to valuable democratic infrastructure like schools and healthcare? What if the economic motivations to go to war outweigh the interests of peace or diplomacy? You know, crazy stuff like that that totally never happened. As Eisenhower said, quote, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. And speaking of misplaced power and the downfall of democracy... Now the Korean War is only one phase of this war between international atheistic communism and our free civilization. Act 4, The Red Scare. Now, for the past two and a half years, I have been trying to expose and force out of high positions in government those who are in charge of our deliberate, planned retreat from victory. All right, I'm going to stop Senator Joseph McCarthy right there because I will just say I listened to this entire, like, 35-minute speech and it is so boring. It's so boring. For someone who did so many crazy things and made up so many crazy conspiracy theories... Ooh, it was a really boring speech. All right, we got to talk about Joseph McCarthy. So during basically the same years as the Korean War, 1950 to 1954, back at home, Senator Joseph McCarthy from Wisconsin was using his power to try to root out communist threats from within the government. And you can hear from this speech that he starts making this argument because of the Korean War. And he basically aligns with Douglas MacArthur. McCarthy, MacArthur, it would be cute if it wasn't so annoying, right? He's basically saying we should have won that entire war, but we retreated back to the 38th parallel. Why didn't we bomb China? Why didn't we do all these other things? It must be because there are communists in the government. And in fact, I have proof that there are, and I'm gonna root them out. All right. So, of course, Senator McCarthy is not the only one making this argument, and this is the problem with naming a thing after a person, like McCarthyism is going to come to be known, but it's that it's easy to discount it, like, once that one person is gone, right? There were a lot of people in Congress and in the general public who were genuinely concerned about communists or communist sympathizers in the federal government. And, like, the Soviets had literally just been our ally in World War II. We forget this sometimes. There had been people within the various allied governments who felt frustrated that during World War II, their governments wouldn't work as closely with the Soviet allies out of this fear of communism, right? If you've seen The Imitation Game, there's a spy who's passing secrets to the Soviets, mostly because he just wants them to be able to help us end the war sooner. So the Soviets go from our tense, like, frenemies to an outright threat really fast. And if you go back a little bit further to the 1930s, there was a growing socialist movement in the United States emboldened by FDR's New Deal that wanted to go further toward democratic socialism like other European nations were doing. And remember at this point that anything that even kind of sounds like communism or like something that could grow to become communism one day, they're all a threat in the eyes of the US government. In 1948, like, there is a high-profile investigation of a State Department official named Alger Hiss, who ended up admitting to being part of the communist underground. He was spying for the Soviets in the 1930s. And so the point is that this fear of communists being among us was not unfounded. There were communists within the country. The question is, 
do they still have rights? <laughs> and what should we do if we find people who believe in communism? And that's where I think me and Joseph McCarthy would disagree. By the way, that State Department official who eventually, like, basically admitted to being a Soviet spy, Alger Hiss, his confession came after intense scrutiny and pressure from a young 35-year-old representative from California named... I'm not a crook. Richard Nixon. We're going to get a lot of little celebrity cameos in this last act. So partly in response to Alger Hiss, in 1950, Congress passed the McCarran Internal Security Act, and that required all communist organizations to register with the government and submit to government supervision. Basically, if you were a member of a communist organization or an organization that aligned with some communist values, your name was on a list and the government had to know who you were. And furthermore, any individual who was suspected of promoting totalitarianism, whether that was fascism or communism, basically like a state dictatorship, they could be investigated, they could be barred from federal office, they could be kicked out of the country. And this continued the work of HWAC, or the House Un-American Activities Committee, which had been investigating anyone connected with totalitarianism since the 1930s. And side note, McCarthy was a senator, so he had nothing to do with WAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee. Although a lot of people just kind of lump them together, they were doing the same work, but in different houses of Congress. So when Senator McCarthy comes along waving a piece of paper saying that he has a list of 205 names of people in the State Department who are communist spies, it's A, not outside the realm of possibility, although 205 would be a lot, and B, it's totally legal for him to start investigating those people, right? McCarthy does not invent or create the Red Scare. He just takes advantage of it. McCarthy goes on to lead the Committee on Government Operations, which allows him to bring any government employee in front of the committee to testify. And he never uncovered any federal employees who were spying for the Soviets. But over 2,000 people lose their jobs anyway because of these investigations. And again, there were real spies out there. Famously, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg became the first American civilians ever executed for espionage in 1953. Now, in hindsight, Julius Rosenberg, the husband, was definitely a Soviet spy. Like, he worked as a courier. He delivered secret messages back to the Soviets. He recruited other people. He brought in his wife Ethel's brother, who very conveniently worked at Los Alamos, the secret lab in New Mexico where the atomic bomb was built. But it's still a little less clear whether Ethel Rosenberg was a spy, or at least whether there was enough evidence to convict and execute her, right? Their two sons have claimed up to this day that their mother was innocent. Like, at most, she typed up some of Julius's notes without fully knowing what she was doing. And, I mean, that's hard for me to believe, considering she and Julius met at a young communist party, and, like, it was her brother who was part of the ring. And also, he was the one that exposed the couple. Oof. Like, I think Ethel had something to do with it. And I will just say... There's this weird feminist reaction in me that kind of hates the assumption that the wife had no idea or wasn't an active participant in their partnership, even if that means she was a Soviet spy. I don't know. But the point of all this is that there were Soviet spies out there that were being caught, but McCarthy didn't catch any of them. But you know who he did, quote unquote, catch? LGBTQ people. This is a subset of the Red Scare that is known as the Lavender Scare. And I will just say it's like amazing and sad to me how many Americans have no idea that this happened. So let's do a little bit of LGBTQ history before we get to this Lavender Scare. So let's go back a little bit. After World War II, there were a lot of young adults moving and staying in large cities for the first time. And so they were increasingly able to build communities based on their identity, like in Harlem in the 1920s after the Great Migration, right? This could be like racial identity, but it also could be sexuality and gender identity. So New York City and San Francisco especially 
became safe havens for LGBTQ people. And at the same time, homosexuality was also being discussed, although not accepted, a lot more openly by the late 1940s. So in 1948, Dr. Alfred Kinsey published his book, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. And this book kind of like shook the core of American masculinity because it asserted that homosexual activity was actually like way more common than previously believed, right? I think that he came to find that like, one in three adult men in the United States had participated in some homosexual activity in their life. Again, that doesn't mean homosexuality is accepted. In fact, it, it actually sparks the opposite reaction. It freaks people out. And unfortunately at this time, homosexuality was still viewed as a mental illness. It was a sign of like perversion or weakness that made many people see homosexuality as a threat. And I wanna be clear, right? Like all of this is homophobic, BS, right? Like what we're about to talk about is the public perception of homosexuals or LGBTQ people, and none of it is based in fact. But to many at the time, communists and gay people seemed eerily similar. Both, again, this is all BS, but both were believed to be immoral, to be psychologically disturbed. Communists didn't believe in God, and homosexuals were seen as violating God's teachings. Right? Propaganda convinced Americans that both groups were trying to undermine the American family. They were trying to recruit your children to join their, quote, subculture. Again, none of this is true, except communists are atheists. That is true. But this bleeds into federal investigations into communist threats. There was a federal committee literally published a report called Employment of Homosexuals and Other Sex Perverts in Government, where they determined that there were at least 5,000 homosexuals working in the federal government and that, quote, one homosexual can pollute a government office. This was rampant during the Red Scare. Experts, and you can't see me, but I'm doing quotes around the word experts, in the government believed that gay people were more susceptible to communist influences because both were, quote, twisted mentally or physically in some way. That is a direct quote from a top intelligence official, by the way. This is all awful. And many officials believed that since, in their view, gay people were mentally weak and were unable to resist their urges, they would also be unable to resist manipulation by Soviet spies. Again, I want to like, let's zoom out for a second and see what's happening. Basically, like, American men have learned that like homosexual instincts are actually way more common, right? Alfred Kinsey, I think it's like 37% of men reported that they had had a homosexual experience. And so they're like, oh my gosh, we need to all be very vigilant and I need to be strong enough to resist those urges. What they're basically saying is like a lot of those men had had those urges and were really scared of them. And they viewed the men who quote unquote could not resist those urges, the ones who were clearly gay were just must be weaker than them because well I can shove it down and pretend it never happened anyway all right let's get back to history I want to be clear too there were rational arguments to this and and what I mean is that like gay people would be more susceptible to blackmail by Soviet spies for fear of being exposed as gay right that's true but that problem could have just been easily fixed by I don't know like not criminalizing homosexual activity but who am I to say so all of this laid the groundwork for Eisenhower's 1953 executive order, Security Requirements for Government Employment, which added sexuality onto the list of criteria for hiring federal employees. So while McCarthy and others were trying to root out communists in the government, they instead exposed 
thousands of LGBTQ employees who have been going about their business, living in the closet, at least at work, although often in every aspect of their life. Some of these people were married and in you know heterosexual relationships, but were secretly gay. And it's estimated that as many as tens of thousands of LGBTQ people lost their jobs during the Lavender Scare. Like, it's impossible to know because the vast majority of them just kind of quietly quit their jobs to avoid being exposed. And I want to be really clear about this. What this means is that it was illegal to work. Like, you were not allowed to work in any part of the federal government if you were openly gay. At all. And that part of the ban... The ban on gays and lesbians in the federal civil service ended in 1975 after 20 years. But there are some parts of the ban that extended all the way until the 1990s. For example, Bill Clinton finally repeals part of the original order that said that restricted national security access for openly gay you know, federal employees. And so what this means is that even if you were openly gay and you were able to get a job in the federal government, which was unlikely, you often were not able to like rise up the ranks to some of the higher spots because you were restricted from certain access because you were seen as a potential like threat to national security. That was up until the 1990s. Beyond the Lavender Scare, the probably more famous other target of this communist witch hunt was Hollywood. And even though now, like, we all just kind of take for granted that eh, Hollywood is, like, pretty liberal and, yeah, there's probably a lot of socialists there and that sort of thing, that was not the case leading up to World War II, right? Remember that during the 30s and the war, this brand new film industry had been a really important arm of the government propaganda machine. In the 1930s, the film industry kind of actively got government support and it exploded as a way to kind of help the general public escape the anxiety of the Great Depression. Like, it always blows my mind to think that both Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz came out in 1939. Like, the same year that Hitler was invading Poland and starting World War II was, like, Scarlett O'Hara and Judy Garland singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. That I don't know why that's weird to me, right? And during World War II, the film industry was like straight up co-opted by the government to create propaganda. Dr. Seuss worked for the government. He helped make military training videos. Go on YouTube and look up Private Snafu. Disney created short films like My Favorite Defuhrer's Face where Donald Duck literally like has a nightmare that he's a Nazi and then is like trying to get people to buy war bonds, right? So the idea that now Hollywood might start becoming a haven for leftists and homosexuals and communists, like this was a big deal. This was surprising to people. Very famously, 10 directors, producers, and screenwriters refused to answer questions when they were called to testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. This so-called Hollywood 10 spent time in prison, and then they were blacklisted by all the major Hollywood studios for refusing to talk about their colleagues and, you know, their own possible communist affiliations. You should go watch Trumbo, starring Brian Cranston. It goes over all of this. And within Hollywood, there were also friendly witnesses who willingly came before Congress to speak out about, quote, communist subversion in Hollywood. Like Walt Disney himself testified about the growing communist threat in the industry. And, you know, totally random side note, Disney had just been through a long and costly labor strike. But like, I'm sure that had nothing to do with his views on potential, you know, socialism in the industry. Most famously, the young, handsome president of the Screen Actors Guild worked with Congress to identify subversives, many of whom, by the way, also happened to be from competing labor unions that were competing with SAG. Whatever. Ironically, the actor who gained prominence as the head of a labor union would go on to be arguably our most anti-union president, Ronald Reagan. Have we noticed, by the way, that the Red Scare is the origin story for the two most prominent conservative presidents of the 20th century? 
Nixon and Reagan, because I think that's interesting, and I feel like there's something to learn from that. But I'm just going to leave it there and let you kind of come to whatever conclusions you would like. Okay, so what finally brought McCarthy down? Well, like, he got a little too big for his britches. And sure, you can attack Hollywood liberals and LGBTQ office workers. Fine. Not really, but you know. But you're going to get into trouble when you start attacking the U.S. military. So in 1954, McCarthy attempted to expose potential communist infiltration in the armed services. Like, <laughs> uh, McCarthy, I'm sorry. What? Like, you couldn't find any evidence of communism in the federal government, but you think the soldiers who just got done fighting the Korean War are now communists? Oh my god. McCarthy's army hearings were broadcast on national television, so the American people watched as McCarthy viciously interrogated witnesses, including high-ranking military officers like veterans, right? Famously, the army's chief of counsel got fed up. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last. McCarthy lost his credibility after those hearings. He was formally censured by the Senate, and he died just three years later of hepatitis, possibly made worse by alcoholism. All right. So by the mid-1950s, the Cold War was well underway. While white Americans were booming and the U.S. government was containing, there was also, though, this growing coalition of people who were not included or were actively harmed by this new vision of conformist, non-communist America, right? Young people who didn't have the same loyalty as those who lived through the FDR era, Black Americans still suffering under Jim Crow, LGBTQ people unable to just live their lives, some women who had gotten a glimpse of economic freedom during the war, but were now kind of stuck in the suburbs. But like, I'm sure they'll all just accept their fate quietly. The 60s will be real chill. To be continued. As always, thank you for listening. If you want a transcript and you want to link to some sources, go to antisocialstudies.org. If you like the content I'm creating, please consider joining my Patreon, patreon.com slash antisocialstudies. And go follow me on Instagram and TikTok and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Thanks.